David Lynch has an incredible catalog of films, but he hasn't made a film in many years because what he calls the art life, which is waking up every day, drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, and painting. That's how he's fulfilled. Hi, this is Sari, and you're listening to the Secret Art Project Podcast. Creativity, mental health, and spiritual health are deeply connected domains of life. After spending years working with rock stars and filmmakers, I decided to get a theology degree. And since then, I've been cultivating my own creative practice. Experience has convinced me that exercising creativity can help us realize who we're supposed to be and manifest a better world. So join me as we talk through the process, interview experts, and get a little weird along the way. So yesterday, I was out in the Willamette Valley. Wait, am I saying that wrong still? Willamette? Willamette. So embarrassing. I was at Red Hills Market in Dundee, Oregon. And I was out there doing location scouting. I was grabbing a a sandwich for lunch. And they were playing um, Natalie and Brulia, the song Torn. And yeah, I'm a little bit sick. So that's what's going on with my voice. But they were playing Natalie and Brulia's Torn. And nothing's right, I'm torn. I had like a flashback to feeling like when that song came out, Grew up in pretty culturally pretty conservative Christianity growing up. And I was like the only one of my friends from church, because my friends were all from church, who was allowed to listen to music that wasn't Christian music. But I still would feel like bad if I listened to stuff where it was like too blasphemous or sex or something and especially like you don't want to listen to that kind of stuff around your parents right that's like embarrassing i love the smashing pumpkins but in the song zero when billy corgan says god is empty just like me i would turn the volume off on the radio for a second so that i would like edit the song so that i wouldn't hear the blasphemy every time so i had this flashback listening to nelly and brulia at red hills market yesterday and i was like thinking about how when she says Lying naked on the floor. And you have to think for a second. You're like, wait, she said she's naked. Is this okay to listen to this song? There's something called purity culture in the 90s <laughs> and today. The 80s, in the 80s, 90s, and today, there's a purity culture. Anyway, you have to think like, can I listen to a song? She just said she's naked. And then you're like, well, she, it seems like she's probably alone. She's like bummed out and alone and naked. And I guess it's not, I guess it's not bad to be naked by yourself if you're not married and, you know, whatever, because you can only be naked with the person you're married to, right? So I just thought that was funny. Like, I remember thinking like, like, oh, let's do some critical thinking about if it's morally wrong that she's just naked in this song, laying on the floor. Did something, did fornication happen? It's funny. Anyway, speaking of sin, I was thinking about envy. And you'll hear, I talked to Josh in my interview about this a little bit later, but I was thinking about this mindful envy. So envy, I say, speaking of sin, because envy is in the, it's in the Ten Commandments. Don't envy. 
And there's like so much conversation about what that means. Does that just mean you can't want something that you don't have? So there's lots of whatever. There's lots of writings upon writings about that idea. And I think there's a lot of conversation about it in the social media age where a lot of people get off social media because they're experiencing too much envy, right? And it's like taking over their lives. They're seeing other curated versions of other people's lives. And and it's just like m- making them feel bad all day about themselves. Uh, and I've experienced that a little bit, That's, but not too much. The only thing I've thought of, well, of course, you want to try to get out of envy and into feeling happy for someone. Like, that's great. If you love someone, you'll be happy when good things happen to them. Even if you don't know them, you know, you can love them in sort of a wishing good on all humankind kind of thing. But like I had, like last weekend, I had a, a very brief, short, a very brief, short-lived experience of envy. My friend who, if she's listening to this, I'll be embarrassed. But my friend works for a big, cool company and got a big, cool promotion. And actually, when I think about it, like, I was genuinely happy for her. But at the same time, well, emotions can coexist, right? At the same time, I experienced a little jealousy or envy or whatever. I know some people distinguish between those things, whatever, for our purposes. We'll just use them, whatever. But I was like, well, what... Do I want that job at that company? Do I want any job at that company? No. You know? And this has come up before where to vet your desires, you ask yourself a question like, what appeals to you about having that thing? And and when I say thing, it's not necessarily a material thing. It's not always like a car or a job or money or whatever. It could also be love or whatever someone else might have. attention that's a big one right my friend dan's a therapist he told me that they also teach you to say to someone you know why do you want that thing but then my friend rebecca who's a professional coach taught me that why questions often cause people to be defensive like you think like when you're growing up and you're a kid and you do something and you screw up or you do something bad and the authority figure around says, why did you do that? And then you have to like come up with a defense, right? Like, well, I don't know. Maybe it origin- originates from that. But like, if you say it changes the answer, it feels like a different energy to say, what appeals to you about that? Rather than why do you want that? It, it doesn't feel as defensive. It feels more positive. What appeals to you about that? Usually, I feel like it's a lot of, well, that would change how I feel about myself because I think I would be perceived in this way. Maybe you feel like you need more external validation. I'm not saying that reason would always be bad or always be different or always mean that you don't want the thing. I could have asked myself that and been like, hmm, well, I guess maybe I do want to work in like an organization, like a big company or whatever, but that's not the case for me. That's not true for me. I think, yeah, I think for me, it's like, well, especially with, especially when you're doing art, when you're investing in yourself in your own craft, a lot of times there's a big chunks of it that nobody sees. And there's no one above you who can promote you. So 
that sort of that authority that could sort of give you that kind of approval is something you might feel jealous of. But that doesn't necessarily mean you want that, you know. So I kind of like that reframe. Like I get excited when I discover things like this because it's like just like little tricks to understanding yourself better and then making better life choices, you know. So like now I'm like excited for like the next time I feel jealousy or envy because I'll be like, well, what appeals to me about that? What appeals to me about that? What was I going to say next? Yeah, but a lot of times with envy or jealousy, it might be, yeah, you really want that thing and you can do it. So do it. I don't think my, my I don't think my partner would mind that I share that. He, he shared something that about a particular filmmaker getting into a particular prestigious film festival. And I asked him, what about that appeals to you? And he actually said, this doesn't fit my paradigm as well, but it kind of, it kind of does. He was like, well, it makes me feel like I'm behind. So it wasn't like, oh, they can do that and I can't, or, you know, I deserve that recognition and they don't or anything like that. It was like, he knew it, it made him feel like his timeline was off, which is real. I mean, I'm older than I want to be when I'm really realizing all these things. But yeah, I don't know. I don't have any like great advice on that, on reframing that to feel like, you know what? Everything's happening in the right time when it's supposed to. And everything I've experienced before has led up to this point perfectly. And, uh, you know, some, some days I am able to feel that that's true. And some days I'm not. Sometimes I feel really depressed that I'm basically, my life is basically almost over is what I feel like some days. It's just your relationship to time and life. And like, I think if you just start healthy, you just start to feel better about your story and your timeline. But I don't know. Maybe I need to journal about that more. But yeah, a lot of times if you're envious of someone, it's like, Oh, then that's fun information that you learned you that you want that and that you can do it. If you think you can't do it, what's that about? But if you see something that you think is good that you want, like, go for it. Figure it out. <laughs> uh, I think. Next up. Oh, yeah. So going back to location scouting, I was out in like the Dundee, Oregon area. Well, I was checking out wineries. I had a meeting with my intern who lives down there for she's an intern for my my day job. She actually just happens to live in that area. And I thought while I was down there, I'll work from a cafe for a few hours and then I'll do some quick pop ins to some wineries where I could possibly film my movie. And I was on my own doing that on my own. And it was I was so grateful. It was such a beautiful day. And if you live somewhere where there's not like distinct seasons, it's hard to understand because I didn't understand it till I came to Oregon. But like spring is like such a show off. It's like really like, oh, birds and bees, I get it. Like they show up and and then all of a sudden there's flowers everywhere, like literally all of a sudden, like it happens overnight that you wake up the next morning and there's all of a sudden like flowers in your yard that you didn't even know were there. Anyway, it was just so gorgeous out there. And I met the nicest people. I 
got to meet the Cho's from Cho Wines, Dave and Lois Cho, through a mutual friend. And they're just the coolest, nicest people. And then, yeah, I got to visit Stoller Cellars, Northwest Wine Company, this J Winery, uh, and yeah, and the Cho's. And it was amazing. I learned so much. I had great conversations. I had some big takeaways, and I will share those in the future. Everybody like kind of knows each other out there. And yeah, the wine community is really cool in Oregon. And it's just like if you decide you're going to do a project, especially a film project, because films take a long time, you have to kind of make sure the subject matter is something you care about. It helps a lot. It helps maintain the momentum. It's like, it's not just because I like to drink wine all the time, but <laughs> which I don't. It is great to drink wine all the time, I think, for me. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of good food that goes along with wine. And I am a foodie and there's a lot of great people in this community. And just like the more I learn, the more I'm like thankful that I chose a film around this, in this world and around this topic. So that's really exciting. Okay. Let me just talk to you about Josh Hasty real quick. I used to work for Rob Zombie as many of for his management company. And all of a sudden I learned of a man named Josh Hasty who was in Rob's world and who one of the films I was a producer on 31. Uh, that was the last film project of Rob's I was involved in before I I moved on. Josh filmed the behind the scenes making of documentary about it. And I have, you know, stayed connected to him through social media. And not just because of our mutual like connection to Rob, but also he ended up partnering with the David Lynch Foundation, which is dedicated to teaching people how to do transcendental meditation. And he's been for a few years now a practitioner of TM and a big proponent of getting especially creatives involved in the practice of TM. It's really helped him deal with depression. Josh is also really interesting because I've seen him like the way he's been able to make things happen, like find a project he's interested in and make it happen is kind of impressive. Like he just has put himself out there in a few key moments in his life and it's paid off for him. He made a horror film called Candy Corn and it was just a super low budget horror feature that had some success. Um, and that happened a few years ago. And what's super interesting about his story is that was a really big goal in his life was to kind of make this like auteur genre film and now he's in a time, and TM has helped him realize this, where he's kind of re-evaluating his whole, what he thought was his whole life's goal. And I love having that conversation, because it's so real and so important to just be honest about, that that's something that happens, that sometimes you get a taste of your dream, and you're like, wait, that wasn't my dream. Maybe that's part of my dream, but that wasn't a big enough dream. Like maybe I need to sort of reimagine something bigger. 
So anyway, he runs a production company doing mostly nonfiction work in Ohio. And he's got this horror film and some other horror-related projects in his not too far in the rear view. I'm excited for you to listen to... One other thing we talk about is manifestation, and that is a triggering word for a lot of people. I don't really love it myself personally, but I believe in something like it. I think that you can just say making shit happen in your life to sort of, if you want to get rid of the baggage that comes with the word of like power of positive thinking and kind of that kind of thing. I talked about this in my, in the episode with Tom Ord, the idea of co-creation. And I think there's a version of manifestation that is co-creation, which is like very theological, spiritual idea, Um, you know, or incarnation, right? I used to watch horror movies as a as a really little kid, like six, seven years old, and because they would scare me so bad, I would try to figure out how they were made to try to pull back the curtain and realize that it wasn't real. I realized that that's probably where it started, and then I started to realize, like, as I learned more about what does go into filmmaking how much I really enjoy that. It was terrible in school and I barely graduated high school. And I got kicked out of a class my senior year. And the only class that was available was film studies, which I didn't even know was an option. And it was like just enough credits for me to be able to graduate. So I was excited about it. And that was where I got to really get my feet wet. So my senior year of high school was the first time I, I ever worked with an editing software. I never had access to anything like that before. So growing up to that point, it was like I would do like stop motion stuff on my parents' webcam. And that was pretty much it. This was the first time I was like, wow, this is cool. I can go shoot stuff with a camera. I can bring it back into here and I can put it together and then I can download music and put music underneath it. And I really, really fell in love with that, with editing. And my film studies teacher, Mr. Like, he was the first person ever. He was like, you have a talent for this. You're actually really good at this. And I see that it's something that you're passionate about. And I was like, that'd be cool. Maybe when my band isn't on tour, I can direct some movies or something. (laughs) And, And he was like, no, you don't have to, you don't have to be Steven Spielberg to make a living in film. You could, worst case scenario, work at a news station locally here. Like That's still doing it. And then, you know, see what happens from there. I would dabble with filmmaking and do little projects with my friends for fun. And I don't know. Yeah, it just kind of, it just kind of took off organically. And I feel like I'm still, I'm 35 and run a production company and I'm still learning. What were some films that inspired you early on? Like what were some of your favorite films? We were talking about those early scary movies where you were trying to figure out how they did that. (laughs) Well, yeah, back then it was whatever was at Blockbuster. (laughs) And I I realized I sound like a 95 year old man now, just already five minutes into the interview. (laughs) But 
But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there was no Apple. They didn't even make phones back in my day. We used to go to Blockbuster. <laughs> but but that was it. My You're brother younger and than I. Me, so. <laughs> and I spent a lot of time at Blockbuster when I was a kid. It was the best place to be. My family would spend hours there, like hours. Cause yeah. You're like, okay, we can only get, like, we don't want to go crazy. <laughs> we get like three movies maybe, but there's like more than three people in my family. And so it was this whole long discussion. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the, the movies I was into as a kid yeah. would be, you know, same thing, kind of whatever's put on the shelf. And then there's there's ones that maybe your friends talked about or it was just a classic. So early on, it was like, I specifically remember the Friday the 13th movies mm-hmm. were always my little brother's favorite. So my younger brother and I would go like to my grandparents for the weekends or whatever. And that's when there was like no rules. And so we could go get the scary movies and stuff. And I think at that age, it's almost like, which is still happening now and always has, but it's like this, can you make it through this? Like, this is so scary. Can you handle it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, so it would be those, anybody who knows me knows I'm a huge John Carpenter fan and John Carpenter's Halloween was obviously like just a a rite of passage. You had to watch it. It was called Halloween. And so those were the ones I think were just kind of inherently a part of growing up, being into scary movies. And then as I got older, I really loved horror. But then I really got into indie films when I saw Virgin Suicides. That movie... I was, I think, a freshman in high school, maybe in junior high. And I was just like, oh my God. Like, it felt like it was not that I'm a a Coppola, but I felt like, man, this is like, this is real. This is gritty. I could maybe make something like this one day. This is different. It's, it's scary because it's real life and what happens in it. And the soundtrack, like everything was just like, okay, this is cool. Discovering Stanley Kubrick was. A really exciting thing. You find this guy who made The Shining. Everybody knows The Shining and is a horror fan and know The Shining. But then you'll watch, maybe after that, you go to Full Metal Jacket. Or if you're super hip, you watch A Clockwork Orange. And then if you are really into it and you earn it, you eventually sit all the way through 2001 A Space Odyssey. (laughs) And all of that was just like, okay, this is like, where Virgin Suicides is like, I aspired to, like, I, I think I could make something like that one day. Kubrick was like, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to be able to do this. You know, <laughs> is there, is there, maybe I should think about something else. There's probably a pretty short list of films that I don't, that I don't enjoy or will at least try to watch and find something I like about it. Yeah, I try not to talk shit about anything. <laughs> Definitely not talk it's, shit. But it's you so know, easy if someone too. especially if someone like makes a movie, you're like that's especially if you know yeah. how hard it is, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's easy to be a critic if you're not, you know. Yeah. Did you thing. see Tarantino's new film is called The Film Critic? No, I did not. Yeah, I'm really excited. It's, his, it's, a, it's a, apparently his last film, you know, it's his 10th one, I think. And they just yeah. announced it the other day. And I, I don't know if that's a working title, but it is It is funny, like, no matter how big or small you are in, in film, I mean, I've had like a little blip of success and I feel like I can handle the the critics because when I read like bad reviews about something I made, it's just like my gut 
kind of reaction to that is like, okay, so it wasn't for you. Exactly. Like that, yeah. That's the end of your review. It wasn't yeah. for you. It doesn't matter how big or small you are, how you know impactful your work is. Like it's hard to argue, you know, that Kubrick and Scorsese and Jarmish and you know Tarantino. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But those people inspired cinema forever. Yet there are still people that think they are absolute garbage and they truly feel that they're garbage. So once you can really accept that mm -hmm. and understand the psychology of why that reality exists, life is, is much more enjoyable as, a, as an artist. Yeah, definitely. Getting to the point where you're okay. Also, like just, yeah, if, if you're an artist, you got to get to a point where you're okay that what you make isn't going to be for everybody and some people will like it and some people will not like it. <laughs> not yeah. everything's not everything about your sense of self is writing on any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. It doesn't define you. That's right. And it, 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 it goes both ways too. I, I've learned like, especially in Hollywood, mm -hmm. like when I made candy corn, it was like, there was so many people around me that were just like, man, this is your genius. This is the best thing ever. Or like, wait, you know, I can't wait to see what you do with like a real budget, blah, 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 blah. And that was new for me. So I was kind of like, man, this is, this is exciting. Mm -hmm. And then the movie comes out and then it becomes very divisive. And you have the people who are literally like one of the reviews was like, I hope Josh Hasty dies just so he doesn't have a chance to make another movie like this. Oh my God, what is wrong and, with people? <laughs> Yeah, I'm still here though. So <laughs> he didn't get what he wanted. But but when you look at that spectrum, it's important to realize as an artist that, at least in my opinion, neither one of those things is real. You are not a genius. You're not the second coming of Kubrick. No one is. Kubrick was Kubrick. You are you. Mm -hmm. You're also not piece of shit who should never try again if you really enjoy it try it again and so i think if you can just realize that it's reality exists somewhere in the middle of hate and praise and once you can become comfortable with that now you're kind of back to making things hopefully from a very genuine place not trying to prove these people wrong and not trying to give these people what you think they want on both yeah. ends of the spectrum so was Candy Corn your first scripted feature film? That's a little a little bit of a gray area. So <laughs> I the first film project I ever made was a feature film that I wrote, directed. I did everything with a few friends and family. So you didn't fuck around with short films or anything? <laughs> no, exactly. I didn't do short films. I didn't do skateboard videos like that. And again, at that what time... About, like, what about music videos? I... Never did any music videos. Now, <laughs> right. I, to this day, I think I attempted one or started one project that never took off or something. Like, I don't say that to, to sound cool. I actually regret that. I wish <laughs> in the past I would have. But again, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I wasn't around filmmakers who were doing this or that. Like, I, I learned how to operate a camera by going to my library to get on their computer because my family didn't have a computer at that time because I wasn't really normal to, to have one unless you were rich and we were. And so, you know, I didn't know 
until later, like, you know, after high school that people in other parts of the country were making skateboard videos and making music videos and different stuff to learn. You were like, like yeah, you're like, well, I like movies. I want to yeah. make a movie, so I'm going to make a movie. <laughs> That's literally what I thought was supposed to happen. And so, so what was that like, that first feature? It was, I mean, it took me a year to shoot it. I shot it around my schedule of waiting tables. I learned a lot, you know, but I learned inside of a silo. I wasn't learning from anybody who can actually teach me anything. I was learning from my own mistakes and wouldn't realize for years that even some of the stuff I thought I learned really wasn't correct. I had decent amount of friends, I guess, and I just did pre-orders. And so I figured out from being in a band that I could go to this company called Disc Makers and have CDs made for my band. And they also did DVDs. And so I did pre-orders and I got all these people to pre-order this DVD. And then like on my lunch breaks at my job, I would like emailed Dread Central and I was like, hey, I'm you know, this filmmaker who made this movie and I'd love for you to check it out. And so it got like some reviews and stuff. And that's why nowadays it doesn't penetrate me at all when people shit on what I do, because that was a catastrophe. Like when Dread Central put it, and they did, like they, they were really cool about it and they didn't rip it apart. The, the article was like, you know, this is clearly a young filmmaker who did this for nothing. And this is like, shows the passion of filmmaking. And, oh. You know, it was like really nice and they didn't have to do that. I didn't pay them or anything. And so I was like, oh, cool. And then you start reading the comments and, and then other people pick it up, you know, and then you start reading what they say about it because they didn't get the email from the hungry young filmmaker. They just see it yeah. and want to rip it apart. And that was like, devastating at that time. I was like, oh, my oh God, yeah. this is terrible. I actually can't put the pieces together about like how you came into Robin Sherry's orbit. <laughs> Suddenly you were just like around. So yeah, you should tell that story though. I like the way you put that. I, I just kind of showed up one day and was around and well, nobody kinda... asked any questions. So I just stayed. <laughs> yeah. Well, the feeling of the memory is that you were just like, hey, can I do this thing? They're like, oh, he seems like not weird. Like he seems like a cool, nice guy. Let's like, why not? Um, that's but. that's literally about how it happened. <laughs> um, well, the 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 guy that I was talking about, we did the film at the Myers house, and that was like a Halloween tribute film. And at that time, I still didn't know like what I wanted to do with my career. And then that guy who owned the house was running Rob and Sherry's social media pages at the time. So this was like, he was running their MySpace pages. And so we came up with the idea of doing this commercial for Sherry's clothing line. And I had never met Rob or Sherry, but we did that and Sherry liked it and used it like on her website and all of that. And so that was really exciting. And then from there, I guess it was probably 2010 or 11, Whenever they shot Lords of Salem, I got invited to come out to set while they were in Salem. Wow. And so I met them, Rob and Sherry, at that point. But at that point, I was the guy who did the total, the total school video. thing. Yeah. yeah. And so it was years later, and I saw that Rob announced he was doing a new movie called 31. And I don't know why. 
But I was just like, man, I'm at a place now where I could comfortably do like a behind the scenes. And I knew all of his, like I learned so much from his behind the scenes for from Halloween and from Devil's Rejects. I got right, so did you just pitch Rob on filming the behind the scenes I of 31? Yeah, I pitched my friend who pitched Rob because Rob didn't know or care who I was at that you point. You were not quite a known entity yet. <laughs> yeah, so I pitched it to him to pitch uh -huh. to Rob and Rob liked the idea, liked yeah. my work. And But it was still like, yeah, come out. Well, you can follow me around during pre-production. We'll give it a try. Yeah. And then at the end of pre-production, he really liked, like every night after pre-production, I would go back to where I was staying and edit everything we shot that day and then send it to the producer, Mike Elliott. Oh, and yeah. Mike is great. Yeah, um, he's really cool. So, yeah, and you're just absorbing like how Rob does things too at yeah. the same time. Like it's a learning experience. It's, it's felt oh, a little bit. Definitely. Yeah. Watching the behind the scenes of Halloween and Devil's Rejects were, I've always said and will always say that that was my film school <laughs> was watching that because that was all I really had. When those came out on DVD, I was like, I would just watch those on repeat and look up. Like if somebody said, hey, you know, have the gaffer fly in a solid. I was like, hold on, what? And I would like go back. <laughs> what is that? And what is write that? it down. Like, I literally yeah. had like a yellow legal pad and I would write down gaffer fly in solid. And then I would go to the library and I would look <laughs> up, what does this mean? And that's so, amazing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, being on set with Rob and it was like real life. Yeah. But yeah, we we did a couple of weeks and then I would send Mike Cole the stuff I was editing and, and he would send it to Rob. Rob still didn't really talk to me much at that point. It was just kind of, he was you know doing his own thing and he really liked it. And then something happened and basically it was like hey you're not a union filmmaker the studio wants somebody who's union to to do yeah. this like you can't just be here which yeah. that was news to me that like there were film unions i hadn't learned that in any any of the behind <laughs> the scenes yeah so so rob pulled me aside at the last production meeting and he was like hey i'm gonna keep you on i'm just gonna hire you personally like you'll be my personal guy. And that way you're not working for the film. You're just working for me. And yeah. And then that was it. I just kept cool. doing what I was doing. It turned out to be the one of the best things that's ever happened to me. That's awesome. So let's like talk about the other thing of like, you've stayed on my radar because, because I haven't worked for Rob now for, I stopped in 2016. But then I started seeing you were doing like, David Lynch, something with the David Lynch Foundation. And I am a huge David Lynch fan. And I was like, wait, what? You know, <laughs> and especially in the last several years, I've gotten super into meditation too. It's pretty been like one of the more positive things in my life. So how did that happen? Yeah. Tell that I'm glad to hear that. Story. I'm glad to hear meditation has been so positive in your life. Um, yeah, like every week there's an email you get from the David Lynch Foundation and it tells you that you're going to, you can log on at a certain time and partake in like a group meditation session virtually for artists, right? Is that the idea? Is it for artists? Yeah. Creatives, yeah. Creatives, broadly speaking. Yeah, um, so yeah. the way it started, I've been a, a big fan of David Lynch as well. After I 
finished candy corn. I had like a really bad, like kind of mental breakdown that in hindsight started while I was making it. But at the end, like I was just like super, super depressed and in like the lowest place I've ever been in my life. And I was trying different things, meaning like different forms of meditation, different apps, things like that. And nothing was working. And aside from my wife, no one knew I was going through that. So I didn't talk to anybody about it. Well, simultaneously, my brother, who is my kindred spirit and my best friend, he was going through something similar, but he did talk to me about it. He was living out in Arizona, so there was like access to lots of different types of things that he he tried to help with his mental health. We got together one night and I, I told him, you should try this thing called transcendental meditation. A lot of the people we like like are spokespeople for it. David Lynch even has a, you know, his own foundation dedicated to it. But my brother and I are huge Jerry Seinfeld fans, and he's a really big proponent of TM. And it just seemed like I was seeing it everywhere. And at that point, I was more like, I just shifted to like big brother mode. And I was like, you should, not in a creepy way, like he's actually my younger brother. I was <laughs> like, you should try this. Like maybe this will help you. And so he did. And he took the course and got his mantra. And he called me afterwards and was like, a different person. He was like, man, this is incredible. This is like the first thing that actually is, is helping wow. me. I, I love this. And so I was like telling my wife about it and she's like, maybe you should try it. That sounds like something you, you might want to look into. That's funny. You gave him the elixir before you took it yourself. <laughs> yeah. And, and eventually took the course, got my mantra, and instantly... When you say the course, is it was it a certain... What did you take? What course was it? So was when it you something get local? Your, like yes, local? locally. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for those who don't know, Transcendental Meditation, there's the TM organization, and the David Lynch Foundation is its own entity, but they also teach people Transcendental Meditation. So you get taught how to properly meditate because you are going to deep places of your mind. And I witnessed like in my class, people like get really freaked out from like PTSD or things that were sure. arising that they've been burying and not realizing it. Sure. And so it's really important to go to one of the facilities, whether it's a David Lynch Foundation or if those aren't near you, you can find a TM organization that are everywhere. And you go, it's four days. You go for like an hour a day. And they just get to know you and then they give you your mantra, which is a unique sound or word that you just say, you repeat, and that's what helps you transcend and meditate. So yeah, I did that. And by day two, I was already like experiencing these benefits of just relaxation and feeling just a little more clear headed. And then very quickly within less than a year, I was like every day, twice a day, it was like, this is the best thing ever. And it's real. I'm not, yeah. it's not a religion that has made me drink some Kool-Aid or something. A lot of people think it is. If you look up TM, they think it's like a religious cult. It was this free thing that I had with me in my pocket at all times that I could sit down and use when I needed and could see benefits from instantaneously. I saw somebody that I followed on Instagram that had just posted something about 
I'm meditating with the David Lynch Foundation. And I was like, wow, I really, I want to do that. So I had my publicist at the time reach out to them and just see if they could introduce me and see if there was an opportunity for me to get involved with them in any way. It was just, hey, how can I become involved with you guys? Yeah. I got a call from Lynn Kaplan, who is the director, the regional director of the David Lynch Foundation in Los Angeles. She interviewed me and wanted to know, like, kind of like a job interview. And then, like, within like 10 minutes, she was just like, her voice got different. She was just like, this is great. Like, I can tell you really love this. What, what about this? What if we created a weekly group call? And she just had all these ideas. And I was just like, yeah, that sounds great. So, yeah, it's been over two years now. Every Thursday, do a call in meditation, whether you practice TM or a different type of meditation, everybody's welcome. And they call in. We have callers from all around the world that join us every Thursday. I host it. I'll either kind of talk about something at the beginning of the meditation that maybe is going on that's relevant to creatives meditating, the good, the bad, and the ugly of that. Sometimes I will have on special guests. And it's always someone who practices TM and is a creative We've had several actors from Twin Peaks who joined us, different musicians and artists from all around the country. And then, of course, David Lynch. Was David joined biggest. you. Yeah. David came Had on you for... met him before that? Or was no. that call the first time? That was the first time ever. And that must have been a trip. <laughs> it, was, it was wild. It was really <laughs> wild because he has such a distinct voice, you know? Oh, yeah. And I didn't know it was going to happen. I didn't ask for it to happen. Our one-year anniversary of the call and Lynn Kaplan, she guides every mm -hmm. meditation because I'm not qualified to do that. And so she just emailed me like a week before and she was like, hey, I've got a surprise for you. Next week is our one-year anniversary and I spoke with David and he's going to, he's going to call in and talk with you before we meditate. I was just like, holy shit, this is going to be crazy. <laughs> like that was crazy enough. The recording of it is actually on my website, but um, just how personable he was, like how real, like I've met in just about every celebrity I've ever could ever want to meet in very, very few of them on your first meeting are just that like they don't give a shit there's no ego like there is no ego with david lynch like right out of the gates like people asked me that after the call they were like man how long have you known him the call was 15 minutes 15 minutes that's how long they're like really i think there's also an expectation that someone is like this really like artsy eccentric figure it might be hard to connect with but that you didn't find that to be the case no, not at all. He was very easy to talk to. And yeah, it was just nice. It was just really, you know, they say, don't meet your heroes. I can say, hey, like for me personally, you know, two of my heroes were David Lynch and Rob Zombie, and both of them are amazing. What are some of the reasons that you think creative types are drawn to this specific kind of meditation? Because there are other ways to meditate, but it seems like a lot of creative and artistic people are drawn to TM in particular. Do you, what do you think is that? Yeah. Thing? That's definitely the case. And I think the reason, in my opinion, is it's easy. Like it's the easiest thing you could possibly do. So if artists are lazy. 
<laughs> now it's <laughs> like for me, I'm, like I have ADHD, and so the thought of like if it were like something I had to like plan for and like do a bunch of like I, I wouldn't do it. Definitely would not do it. On top of that, you as an artist, you do get into slumps. So having an easily accessible tool in your pocket, you shortcut past all the excuses that you could have when you are feeling down and you don't want to meditate, you know, and I've been there a million times. So I think that that's a big reason. I think the other reason is a more scientific reason, which is what's actually happening when you practice transcendental meditation. And so the best way I've ever heard it described is from Bob Roth, who is the CEO of the David Lynch Foundation. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but he says, most other meditations are like this. You are in a boat in the ocean and it's really wavy and that's life. The waves are life. Sometimes they're really crazy. Sometimes they're not as bad, but you're always rocking around in this boat. And most other meditations trying to train you, teach you, help you get to lay down on the boat, flat, get to the bottom of the boat where there's less turbulence and just relax. And that sounds nice. <laughs> Transcendental meditation takes you all the way to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> away from the waves where it's quiet and there's absolutely no disturbance. And I think that that is a big reason why creatives like it as well. You really are going to a place mentally where you aren't distracted, you're not overwhelmed. I've said in interviews before that it's like my mantra is like this little sidekick that goes in my mind and clears out all the cobwebs. And I think that's something that I think creatives generally, whether you, no matter what type of creative you are, you can relate to that overwhelming compounding of stress, of anxiety. And when you practice TM, by the very nature of practicing transcendental meditation, you cannot think about those things. So to give yourself 20 minutes of just being void and rid of all of those types of distractions and overwhelming feelings and thoughts, you then come out much clearer. If you sit down and you practice with a mantra that was given to you by an instructor in the appropriate situation, and you give yourself 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon or evening, you're going to see those results. I have to find this David Lynch quote that he, he talks about like this, like a, when a man ha handing him pieces of an idea. Do you know this quote that I'm talking about? No, it's like no. almost like, I don't know if it's the muse or what he calls it, but it's almost like when he's like writing a movie or putting something together, it's like the next piece, it comes to him in pieces. And he's just yeah. like, oh, almost yeah. like there is a complete idea out there and he's just waiting for it to become revealed over time. Yes. You feel like you can relate to that or... Or I don't know, just however, however that relates to yeah, your I don't, creative process. I'm not going to ever say that I can relate to anything David Lynch <laughs> says. I don't feel like I've earned that. Safe, good move, um, good move. <laughs> but, but I do, I think I recall what you're saying. And he talks about, at least in the one I'm thinking of, he talks about how um, there's a conduit 
he's a conduit of the ideas and they come from somewhere, they come through him right. and he puts it out. Right. That's how he feels in his creative process. Yeah. Or how he experiences I, I it. I can. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how that, how people feel that way. Definitely. Especially through meditation. I, I think ideas are maybe subconsciously installed and maybe through meditating, you just stop the noise. And so those ideas are able to come through right. a lot clearer. But I talk to people who don't meditate and I'll say, you know, have you ever like been trying to think of an idea or you've had something you just, you couldn't crack the code on and like right before you fall asleep, you get it. Or you wake up at three in the morning to get a glass of water and you realize the answer. That's all the proof you need that when the brain stops the static, the noise of everything for just a little bit of time and you do it the right way and allow these ideas to come, then yes, I've used the reference that I, uh, the example that I, I think I have a lot of ideas that are stored away in boxes mm -hmm. in my brain mm -hmm. and TM helps me not only find, but open those boxes. And not every meditation, a box gets opened. And certainly not every meditation do all the boxes just fly open. <laughs> but you put in the work for yourself. You invest the time to meditate, to just relax, clear the head, chase 20 minutes of that moment where you are about to fall asleep and you're not stressed about anything. And at the right time, at a certain time, a box will open. And that happens to me all the time. It's happened to me when I've been writing stuff and I've just felt what I guess people would call writer's block, where it's just like, what do I do to get from this act to the next? Like how, yeah. what do I do? And then it's like, is everything else shit up to this point? If I can't figure it out, does that mean yeah. I've gotten myself in a, a corner? Yeah. And then I've had meditations where that particular example, I was working on a screenplay and I remembered, came out of the meditation and then I was just like, holy shit. And I got it and I ran right to my computer and wrote it. Yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you too is because there's a stereotype out there of the type of person that is in the meditation when they do yoga and they look like the emoji, the yoga, the like meditation emoji, right? They don't make horror movies or play. Yeah. Of course, that's a stereotype and it's not like we're all like these new agey have this like very fluffy aesthetic, whatever. Ne neither is David Lynch. Like he, you know, doesn't fit that stereotype of the new age meditation guru type person or whatever. But I feel like it should make you better at being yourself, not be like a certain kind of person. That's, that's what we're all going for. Right. That's, that's the best. Like, I'm so glad you said that because that is the biggest benefit that I've had over the last three and a half years that I've been practicing TM. And you can easily find photos and interviews of me three years ago. <laughs> my, e my ego was driving the car and I'm to a place now, I credit it entirely to meditating, which doesn't help people thinking it's a cult. I've gotten to a place where I feel like I have put my ego in the back seat and strapped it in. So it's still there but in a healthy way. It's not driving anymore. It's not getting out of control. And because of that, I'm much happier with myself because I've been able to identify 
And this was a long process. And it, I was very aware of what was happening while I was going through this process because it was a, it, it started out like where I was realizing these things and then it became a conscious effort that I wanted to invest in myself, which was identifying why am I here? Like not in an existential way, but why am I doing this for a living? Why am I chasing this? Part of the reason I said I, I started meditating ultimately was because of the depression I had after Candy Corn came out. And a part of that depression was not feeling fulfilled. I made a movie with people I never thought I'd be able to work with, like Tony Todd from Candyman and PJ Souls. PJ was in John Carpenter's Halloween, which is why I wanted to work with her. And then she posts on Facebook, like after we wrapped and after the movie came out, like this side-by-side -side picture of her working with John Carpenter and her working with me and wrote this whole thing about how she hasn't worked with a director since John Carpenter that made her feel like excited to be on set and love movies. Mm, that's so cool. Wow. If you don't have your shit in check, that will take your ego to a very bad place. And so all of that was happening and I wasn't feeling like proud and fulfilled, not in, I know it sounds maybe kind of like, I don't know, arrogant to say that. I wanted to really be proud of all this stuff. And we had the red carpet premiere in Hollywood and all the things that, that yeah. you could ever want as an indie filmmaker from a farm in Ohio. There's a lot that goes into it. You start to realize like a lot of the people that are telling you how great you are is because they want to be in your next thing in case this one's a success. And if this one isn't a success, they're going to completely ignore you. And all of that reality starts to just become like, what am I doing? What is the point of this? What did I enjoy about it? What do I not enjoy about it? And what, what am I doing moving forward? Mm. And so... Do you feel like you yeah, have clarity about that now? Like what does light yeah. up about it or what, what does thrill you about it? That's still evolving. I think that will change. For me, I've realized I love filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And I don't care if it's making movies or if it's like my production company just did like a masterclass series for a Harvard psychologist. Hmm. And it was so rewarding to work on that type of content where like we were looking at like the, her comments on the psychologist page. People like have literally like not committed suicide because they found her work mm. and to know that we get to be some part of helping get that message out there is incredibly rewarding so working on stuff like that's not sexy or cool to the horror fans who want to know what was tony todd like or what's rob zombie like for me it's this is so fulfilling and while we're doing this i'm on set we are like the budgets for that type of stuff, because that's what my company does is, is mostly that type of nonfiction work. And the budgets that we have are bigger than any indie film I've ever been a part of. So I get to work with incredible crews, with cameras that I never thought I'd be able to be around and when I'm doing indie film stuff. And so it's rewarding in that way where it's like, just being around these people operating this type of equipment. And what I found is at the end of the day, for me, if I'm creating something I can be proud of, whether it premieres at the Chinese theater 
<laughs> or it is sold internally to therapists. If I'm proud of it, that's what I want. That's what I'm now chasing. I still love the idea of making a movie. I regularly turn down doing another candy corn installment, but there's been a handful of times that it's came to me with funding, with just here you go, write it, do what you want. Here's the funding. Because to be clear, many people love to hate it. It still is a successful indie film for what it is. It has a global licensing deal for the merchandise. For me, I got to tell my little story, my little homage to slashers. And the next film that I want to do, I've realized, is something that hasn't come to me yet. It's like that Bukowski quote. It's from one of his poems, So You Want to Be a Writer. And he says, if it's not burning inside of you, don't do it. It's like the whole, if you never read the poem, read it. Like that, that <laughs> poem is like one of my mantras. Because the whole thing is, if you are not ready to die for this, if you have to show it to your wife or your boyfriend or your <laughs> sister or your brother for their approval, don't do it. I think one of the lines is, if you can imagine yourself doing anything else at all, don't do it. And that's where I've gotten comfortably. And I realize that I'm fortunate in that situation because I run a successful production company that works outside of the Hollywood system. So when the time comes and I feel that I have to do it, that it's burning inside of me and I can't imagine doing anything else, that's when I'll make my next film. And I feel that the filmmaking landscape would be a much more vibrant place if everyone felt that way. I think that we would have a lot more genuine films that are out there. But I think it's really interesting, Josh, that you like you reached a really big goal in your life. And now you seem like you're in this phase of reshaping what the next goal is going to be for you. And it seems like it's going to be something that looks a lot different. Do you think I'm going to be like an auteur genre director, like my heroes? And then, I don't know, maybe you still want that, but it sounds like it might be in flux a little bit. Yeah, I think it's just, I thought that definitely. And then I got to meet those people and then in some cases become friends with those people and start to wonder, well, is this what I wanted? Was it mm -hmm. now that I'm here and I can get advice now that I can, which I did surprisingly. And it's not a fantasy. It's like flesh and blood now. And these are real people, yeah. not gods. And <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and they're so real, it, take, normal. it kind of takes the, the missos out of it. it <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was like realizing, okay, this is what I wanted and I did it. And that happened a couple of times, you know, getting to work with and meet Rob. When that was happening, I was like, okay, well, if I die on the plane ride home, I did literally <laughs> something I never thought I would ever do. And then right after that, I got hooked up with these people from working on 31 that wanted to do this idea of candy corn. And so... It was just like, holy shit, this is how it happens. It's going now. I got a taste of it. I got to do the auteur thing, made a movie that is just as hated as all my favorite movies and just as loved as all my favorite movies by the right people. 
I think I'm maybe just realized that's not all there is to life. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not all there is. And it's like David Lynch has an incredible catalog of films, but he hasn't made a film in many years and doesn't plan to because he's very fulfilled with what he calls the art life, which is waking up every day, drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, and painting. That's how he's fulfilled. And he's talked about it. Mm. And yeah, so I think it's just more more realizing like there's more to life than just that one dream. You know, Candy Corn, like I said, it was like I got kind of thrown into it, caught up in like the Rob Zombie world that I was living in. And it was great for what it was. And I don't regret it. But the next time I, you know, I want my eyes to be open a little more, which they are now. You know, I want to be a little clearer on exactly what I want to do, what I don't want to do, surround myself with the right people and make sure, I guess if I say it in one word, just be intentional, Mm -hmm. be intentional about what I do next. Hmm. I'm always Mm -hmm. working on scripts and treatments. I've got the ideas, they're there. But uh, it's funny when people ask me, are you going to make another movie? I'm like, well, are you talking about investing? Like, what's the conversation (laughs) we're having right now? Because what it takes to make a movie. I mean, we did candy corn for 250 grand. Holy shit. That's yeah. great. That's it's <laughs> I mean, that's so, hard, but that's amazing. So cheap. It, was, it ended up being 16 days wow. that we shot over the course of two and a half years. Dang. Uh, yeah, it was. Where? It was the worst. So it was the worst. <laughs> funny you should ask. It was, yeah, it was the worst production experience. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't have a producer. The only film set I was ever on was 31. That was the only film set I'd ever been on, aside from doing my little projects. And then I have these people who were like, hey, you, you've got a good eye. A good eye. Rob Zombie's talking about you on his Instagram. Do you want to direct this? And I'm like, you know, again, because my ego wasn't in check. I was like, hell yeah, I want to direct. I can do this thing. I just watched Rob Zombie for 30 days. Are you kidding me? I could direct anything. It's so much more than that. Any Anybody, I don't care how a tour you are, a director who tells you they did it all is a, just the biggest lying piece of shit you've ever met. They don't. It takes a freaking army. And that crew the whole time was me, my cinematographer, a sound person, and like some family and friends. I was going and getting people lunch for the day. I didn't know <laughs> I didn't know someone was supposed to do that. I thought I was supposed to do it. Because in my head, I was like, well, this is my project. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I got to take care of everybody. So I was going and getting people food. And it, it was just, there was no, like, we didn't have a grip truck. It was my friend showed up in his Honda Accord or whatever it was with his Sony FS7 and his still lenses. And that's how it started. And it started as it's going to be this fun little thing we do. Somewhere along the way, I was able to convince people like PJ Souls and like Tony Todd and Courtney Gaines to get involved. They really liked like the fire and the passion of this low budget indie film. So it was a, it was a blessing and a curse that it did that. And then of course, Epic Pictures and ironically Dread Central bought the rights to Candy Corn (laughs) <laughs> and they they really loved it and that was great. Yeah. And when it came out, it was the number three best horror seller next to 
I think it, I don't know if it was Blumhouse's Halloween. It was maybe one of the Halloween movies and Eli Roth's Haunt and then Candy Corn. And that was really cool for like literally 60 seconds. And then after that, all the reviews started coming in because everyone expected it to be as good as Eli Roth's whatever $20 million haunt movie. That is what sort of spiraled into like this. Again, Josh Hastie needs to go die. But it's like, if you go into it thinking it's a bullshit $250,000 movie made by a bunch of fans, like it's pretty freaking good. It's pretty impressive <laughs> at that point. But yeah. that's not how it's presented. I guess that's when you realize that a big part of like film publicity is about setting people's expectations. And even that doesn't yeah. always work, but teaching people what something is beforehand. Yeah. One thing I wanted to bring up is the idea of manifestation, which is like the subject line of the email that we've been going back and forth on is from a meditation you did where like the theme of manifestation was coming up. And I had a lot of questions about that word. I still find that word triggering in a lot of ways because of the way it's been used. But I just wondered what you think, like manifesting the life you want, like what that means to you and has it changed or no, I'm with you. It's definitely, it's a word that has been sort of pirated, if you will. And yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I'll just say quickly, a lot of what's out there in the vaguest terms is like manifestation is if you think positive thoughts about your life, then things will appear in your life and just don't think about the bad things. And that just feels like too easy for one and also like insulting to people who have hard shit going on in their lives or who yeah. are experiencing systemic injustice. You don't say to them like, just think good thoughts and better things will happen, you know, no. but also that's not necessarily the only way to think of manifestation, you know? Or yeah. I think that, I think that there's been a lot of like gurus online who have, who've hijacked the word manifestation mm -hmm. and they want to sell you you know, mm -hmm. the key to selling any product or service is knowing what's in it for the audience. Mm -hmm. And what's in it for the audience when you're selling this idea is that literally all you have to do is think positively and you will become a millionaire. That's bullshit. It's absolute <laughs> bullshit. Here's what manifesting is to me and why I'm a big supporter of it. To me, manifesting is first identifying what you want. Mm knowing why you want it mm -hmm. and ensuring that it is something that is is beneficial mm -hmm. and is true. Once you've done that, it is getting to a place mentally to where you can clearly identify as many paths as possible to succeeding in that goal. For me, and the reason I say manifesting around transcendental meditation is because by clearing my head, by meditating and giving my, my myself an opportunity to clear my mind, I'm, as I said, turning off the noise. I'm cutting out the static. I'm clearing the cobwebs, however you want to word it. I'm giving myself an opportunity to think clearly. And when I think clearly, I can then identify opportunities that I would otherwise not see, maybe at all, because of the compound effect of stress and just life in general. And so for me, manifesting is, is taking the time to allow yourself the ability to identify what you want, what you deserve, and 
on the same side of that coin, investing in the time for yourself to be able to clearly identify how to get there. And an example that I give is, you know, like doing the the documentary, the Rob Zombie thing. I didn't know Rob. I didn't have any way to get a hold of him. I really wanted to do this documentary. I knew that I could do a great job. I knew I had a friend who ran his social media pages. So I also knew that my friend would probably not do this. He was probably think like, no, I'm not introducing you to Rob Zombie. I know you're going to embarrass me or something. <laughs> so I also, part of the manifestation process for me was knowing how to deliver this ask to this particular person. And in doing that, I was able to disarm him and not make him feel like I was going to be a threat and it as a potential opportunity for him as well. And so this is by thinking clearly. Mm -hmm. And it did. It turned out to be a great, you know, I got it. Yeah, and, uh, it's actually like a, it's a win-win-win, as they say. I mean, yeah, if you can get to Michael a point. Scott. Well, yes, it does. <laughs> Michael Scott. It does benefit you because you get to hang out with your hero and you get to learn a bunch of stuff. But the what you're asking is, can I give you a present, which is a documentary that's practically free. Like, yeah. that is a value add. Exactly. Cool. And I think without, you know, to, so to me, that's the manifestation process. Yeah. And without that, it's just me seeing, oh, he posted he's doing a new movie. Yeah. And maybe I'm busy doing this and I think to myself, ah, oh, one day, one day I'm going to be able to do that. And then I just go, and then one day never comes because one day yeah. never comes. Yeah, You have to make it happen. You have to know why. Here's the other thing I'll tell you that I think is interesting about manifestation is what I've learned is the things that I thought I wanted that I don't. And mm. so if I try to manifest something, again, meaning I want mm -hmm. to do this particular project with this person. And I take the time, I meditate, I'm, I'm really spinning my subconscious energy <laughs> on this thing, letting any ideas, whatever come. And then I'll start to realize things about this project, like, oh my God, well, if we do this, I'm going to have to do this, this, and this. Right. I didn't even think about it because I was so excited about that. But that's happening at the same time this thing is. Yeah. So- I actually want to do this more. Maybe I should not go down this road and spend who knows. And I've done this. I've learned the hard way where you get, you know, wheels turning, you get conversations happening. And then you have to say, Hey, so and so, I'm sorry, I actually can't, I can't keep going. And you realize I'm actually not as invested in this as I thought I would be because this other thing makes more sense right now or is, you know, for whatever reason, it doesn't have to be malicious. Yeah. I've been thinking this week too about envy, jealousy or whatever. Like sometimes you see someone's doing something and you're like, dang, I wish I could do that. Or like maybe someone you know or someone you kind of know. And sometimes it's, well, actually you can do that thing. Like what you're recognizing yeah. is that you want something and that you can do it. But sometimes you have to ask yourself, you have to peel a layer off the onion. And this is something that meditation can help with, right? With making it more reflective. If you go... Well, what appeals to me about that? Like yes. if I heard and you realize you're not actually jealous of what they are doing or what they did, but something about it is something that you long for. Yes. Um, sometimes that's just like an emotional need or something, you know, like so like a friend of mine got like she works at this big, cool company and she got a big, cool promotion. And I'm like, I felt a little jealous for a second. But then I'm like, but I don't want to like I don't want that job at that company. <laughs> but yeah. you want like. 
that I want like, you know, that external like that like blessing of that entity that's like, hey, you're cool. We're going to give yes. you resources. And right now I'm in a phase where I'm really focusing on like investing in my my creativity, my directing, my writing and stuff. And that when you're doing that stuff, you're on your own for a while. And that's just like, it's not the same kind of thing where you're in a corporate structure and there's a ladder to climb and blah, blah, blah. For me, it's been a journey to, to kind of discover what I want. For a long time, I was like a really good helper as a part of a team. But that was ultimately, it was just kind of satisfying to be part of a team and being like part of a cool team, you know, and having a role. But then I neglected for a long time my own creative stuff. And so now I'm in a phase of like, putting more energy there and, and seeing what it is that I want. Because you can't, like you said, you can't manifest, you can't make it happen if you don't know what you want. Yeah. Or if you think you know what you want, and that's actually not what you want, you know? So Yeah. yeah. I think that's what, what you learned this week is what I would argue is one of the most fundamental pillars of success and happiness in life, period. Mm -hmm. I think that if you, it's so easy to get caught up in that, if it's jealousy, if it's envy, even if it's like you feel like it's under control and you're looking at, as a filmmaker, maybe you're looking at a movie that did really well and you're thinking like, cool, good for them. But like, I'm going to do, I'm going to do that as well. But you think you have it under control, but there's still this like, why are you thinking that though? Yeah. And if you can identify that, and that's been the, I think the nucleus of this whole mm -hmm. thing, which is through the time I've spent on my own meditating in my own headspace on this journey to kill my ego it's been a lot of realization around making movies making horror movies being around whatever why do i want to do that why did i start doing that what why was it not fulfilling mm -hmm. when i you know did this and then mm -hmm. did this why was i what am i still chasing yeah. if that's the case if i can make 10 more movies let's say they get better and better and better and better Am I still going to feel this way? If so, yeah. what am I doing? Yeah. And yeah, I think for I think, me, yeah. Yeah. a lot of what I realized is, and I maybe a lot of people feel this way, maybe they don't, I don't know, but there's so much ego involved. There's so much of, and I'm speaking for me personally, that when I would see someone put out a little Hindi horror movie or whatever. And I would think like, I can, I can do that. I can do better and I can get better names. Like, even though I have no right or credit to do that, it's this feeling of like, I want the attention, the way yeah. people are talking about X, Y, Z. Yeah. I just want to be validated in the same way. Yeah. And that's so much, just not it's all about that external approval. And then you realize yes. like, even if you got it, that wouldn't be enough. It, like you said, there would be like I tell you right seconds. now, it's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you could have got your 60 seconds of joy or whatever. And then you're like, wait, now where is it going? Like, so, so much of that, like, I like that question. What appeals to you about having that thing? And so much of the time it's like, oh, then I could feel this way about myself because I would yeah. be perceived this way. You know, if it's yeah. something superficial, whether it's something like a car you know, or like, yeah, or it's something like a, an art project, you know, a, a creative project. It If it's a, ultimately about how it's going to make you feel about yourself, like that could be, that's something to think about. I agree yeah. with you. And, and I don't think that it's always a bad thing. You know, if, if yeah. you see, you know, competition is a good thing. And if you see something that you kind of envy, 
it can be rewarding. But again, I think it's it's really important, like you said, to identify that. Mm-hmm. Try to give you know get, you owe it to yourself before you go on this this journey and ultimately maybe let down. Identify what is it about about this that that you're really going after, and who knows mm-hmm. what doors that could open for you. Mm-hmm. That maybe maybe there's something else you never. <laughs> I mean, I thought after after candy corn came out and I went through all of that. I tried oil painting. I did like charcoal sketches. I started making music again. Mm. Like I was just like, I just want to like do this for me. You know, like I want to like just yeah. Remember why I wanted to be created in the first place. Yeah. And I think turns out I'm not really great at any of those things, but I learned. <laughs> I learned that. And yeah. so I think that that's really important and I hope people listening to this will will really think about that because mm-hmm. there's yeah, it's it's so easy to get caught up in all of it, especially yeah. in social media and stuff. It's like you owe it to yourself though to really spend a little bit of time and, and think about what truly makes you happy. Mm-hmm. And we live in an age where it doesn't matter what it is, you can probably obtain it with a little bit of work and grit, but you have to know what it is first. Yeah. And what I like about your story too is the asking. Like once you figure out what you want and talk connecting with the people who might be able to make it happen or partner with you on it, like Getting to a point where you're comfortable asking is so good because the worst people can say is a no. And if you can learn to deal with a no, like that's powerful. You know, I'm at a point right now where I have to ask a bunch of wineries if I can film at their winery and that taking up space and not being able to offer a huge like location fee or something makes me like I have trepidation about that. But that's part of this process for me is I have to just be okay to take up some space in someone's world for a few days (laughs) to make my project. Yeah. I, that's I had to do that for every single location we did with with candy corn and not that you asked for, but some unsolicited advice. Maybe you already have a plan and I'm sure it's you do. But if you're just honest about where you're coming from and and what like people really, in my experience, they really appreciate that. Like nobody people want to feel treated fairly. They want to feel heard and you know, if you're coming in just like, hey, we're going to make a movie and like, it's going to be like the worst thing you can say is just generally is this is going to be good exposure for you. Like, hey, will you do this for free? This will be good exposure. Nobody cares about that. They don't, what are you going to do? If you can't afford to pay to rent the place out, you're not giving them any exposure yeah. they can't get on their own. Yeah. So what you do is you be honest and you tell them what you're doing. You tell them why, you know, again, to the Bukowski quote, let them Feel the fire burning inside of you. <laughs> and people will really, the right people really, they really appreciate that. Yeah. We got we got one guy in, in, in this little town in Ohio named called Blanchester. And I reached out to this guy and there's a bunch of stuff happened where our other location fell through. And I was like panicking. We were filming the, the next day. And I needed this dude to let me use his movie theater. This is not a small <laughs> ask. And I was just like, really, like I get really passionate when I'm passionate about something. And, and I was just like, I was just telling him what happened and why I need this. And like, I don't have any money to give you, man, but like, if you can't do it, I completely understand. But like, here's what we would need and blah, 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 blah. And this guy called back and he was like, couldn't be nicer. And he was like, so what else do you need? Like, will you need any other, lo- any uh, locations? And I was like, yeah, but like, I don't know. You know, I, I kind of rattled. He's like, you need a restaurant? I was like, 
actually, yeah, we we do. We're gonna sh- we're gonna shoot that in L.A. down the road. But like, you got a restaurant? He's like, actually, I do. Yeah. He's like, so that street that the movie theater's on, I own that entire street. He's like, whatever you guys want, you can you can use. And so we did that. We called the police to see if we could shut down the roads because you know we just wanted our period cars going by. And same thing. Like told them the story, and they thought it was cool. And so. The people, you know, I had one guy from LA who was helping me and he was just like, you can't, you're not going to call the police. They're not going to shut down the road for you. You got to get a permit for that. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it in LA. That's for sure. Not in LA. (laughs) And he was dumbfounded of just how generous everybody was. And it's funny, full circle. The reason I've been like that is because of David Lynch's book, his autobiography that he wrote. He talks about that. He talks about how you just need to be nice to everybody. Like, you cannot have an ego because you don't know who you're going to be working for one day. And more importantly, what are you fucking trying to prove? What are you trying to (laughs) prove by having an ego to these people? Like, we're all here trying to have fun. Yeah, and then it's like really just a nice human exchange if they're doing it because they want to support an artist who's like a nice person at an important point in their career and that can make a big difference. And then maybe you don't get them back one day, but it'll, you know, karmically. (laughs) It's just a nice thing in the human race to just like be part of that exchange of energy, of, of supporting other people who just have dreams and are trying to get there, you know? Maybe just last thing is just like, if people want to learn more about TM, where should they start? If you want to be really inspired, you can go to joshhasty.com and look up the the interview that I did with David Lynch and see if you don't get inspired after listening to him talk about mm-hmm. TM. I encourage everybody to do their homework on it. See if it's right for you. I've never cool. met anybody that is worse off because of it. I can tell you that. But maybe you don't like it, but check it out. There's plenty of information out there. Start with the David Lynch Foundation, and if that's not near you, check out tm.org. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Josh. That's the interview, folks. As usual, you can email me, sari at secretartproject.com. If you have any questions or want to connect about anything, you can also use speakpipe.com slash secretartproject to leave a voice message. You can learn more about Josh at joshhasty.com, and there's a few other links in the show notes about TM and his interview with David Lynch. My intro music is Lawless Flawless by Omniflex. Thanks to Omniflex for letting me use that song. And until next time, folks, keep working on your secret art projects. (laughs) 